Welcome to the Do Theology podcast, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Ken from Indiana. And I'm Jeremy from Utah. Today we are playing for you an interview we had with Tom Askell. Tom is a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention, and in this interview we had a great conversation with him talking about issues within Tom's denomination, as well as the social justice movements and how it has impacted the church. And we would love to hear your thoughts about this as you've listened to uh, the interview. We encourage you to reach out to us on social media. We've got our Facebook page. We've got our Twitter handle, at Do Theology. You can email the show at show at dotheology.com. We'd love to hear from you and know what some of your impressions were and some of the, the thoughts that you might have had from the interview. Calvinism is much false doctrine as a woman preacher. Well, of course, in fundamentalism, you define everything as a gospel issue. This is a true mark of Christian maturity to discern the difference of issues. I got an idea. Let's not wrong with anybody who thinks they got another idea. There's a lot of different understandings of what the days are in Genesis 1 and to what degree evolution was part of how God created things. I have disagreements with him in some areas, but those are adiaphora, those are side issues, many important issues. So many Bible doctrines are ruined when we use the wrong words. This is why it's so critical that we use only the King James Bible. You gotta have that right or get out of here. Pray God that I don't take every minor thing and make a major thing out of it. Nothing divides like truth. I respect them as brothers in the Lord, with whom I have some strong differences, but they have a big problem with me. Is there a way that we can work together? I think fundamentally we have to say yes. Christians can disagree and still kick it. Joining us today is the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and the president of Founders Ministries, an organization committed to the recovery of the gospel and the biblical reformation of local churches. He is an author and editor of several books, including Dear Timothy, Letters on Pastoral Ministry, and was the executive producer of the Landmark Synodoc By What Standard. His current project is the upcoming docuseries Wield the Sword. These and many other resources for the local church are available at founders.org. Tom Askell, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you today. It's a joy for us to have you on as well. And we know that uh, a number of months ago, you had a medical episode on a Sunday morning and just wanted to see how you're doing now. How is everything? Yeah, I'm doing really well. God's been so kind, abundantly kind in that. So I have no complaints. Um, there were some tests that um, the doctor, neurologist wanted to run that, that didn't get ordered and one that got ordered that couldn't be executed because of COVID-19. And so we're still waiting on some of that. But um, I, I asked the neurologist who's a friend, I said, well, what do I tell people? They said, well, what happened to you? He said, well, I'll just tell them that uh, your, your brain misfired. And I said, well, there's nothing unusual about that, you know, that happens all the time, and usually it goes with my mouth as well, but fortunately my mouth didn't misfire at the same time, so uh, God's been kind. I, it's, uh, anyway, the, the, the trauma doctors at this trauma hospital where I was taken initially, they were just amazed at um, the recovery over the span of about 12 to 14 hours, um, far beyond what was expected, and family was told, and so, uh, and God's just been so great gracious to me and my family. And, and I know it's through the prayers of people. We, people I don't know have uh, indicated to me or my family, our church, that we're praying. So thank you for that. And thank you for asking. 
Yeah, we, we praise God for uh, for your recovery in that way, and because you continue to uh, produce some excellent resources, and you have this this new project coming up, this Wield the Sword, which seems like a pretty massive undertaking. I uh, just wonder if you could share just your elevator pitch for the venture and um, let people know how they can support it. Yeah, well, the elevator pitch is this. Uh, we're doing a docu-series about the Bible needing to be used by God's people. Give us money. So, I mean, that's about as short as it goes. But no, it, it's, a, it's a follow-up to the, the synagogue of By What Standard. By What Standard, we were trying to shine light on dangerous ideologies that we saw in the culture and coming into the churches and wanting to expose those to the best of our ability. And I think God helped us to do that. A lot of lights went off as uh, people have watched that and given us feedback. But by the end of the project, um, talking to Jared and, and different ones that were involved, and uh, I just had this overwhelming sense of sorrow in my heart. And uh, it led to real repentance as I began to examine myself and, and recognize that I'd been asleep at the wheel in some sense. I've been trusting people who were leaders in the evangelical world that I have great respect, admiration for, that uh, if things that I thought I was seeing, hearing weren't quite right, you know, if they were really that bad, these guys would be on top of it because that's what they do. And when it finally dawned on me what was happening um, and then getting into it and trying to expose it and all the obstacles and challenges we received even in that attempt, uh, I, I became convicted that uh, I should have been far more diligent that I had been, and that we need to not simply expose the bad things. We need to communicate as clearly as we can how to use God's Word. God's Word is so uh, good. It's, it's, it's filled with wisdom. It comes from our God who loves us and gave His Son for us. And for us to simply assume it or to leave it and ignore it, leave it unused, uh, that's sinful. Uh, it's a sword, and we are to take it and apply it to all of life. So thus is the genesis of Wield the Sword. Big project. Um, we're hoping to do like 15 small uh, documentaries that will be about an hour or so in length and uh, address various issues of life, culture, metaphysics, pastoral ministry, church life, the Bible and the world, home life, marriage, family, uh, male-female uh, relationships, manhood, womanhood, um, just all those kind of aesthetics, you know, so just showing that there's nothing in the world that the Bible doesn't apply to, and Christians ought to learn how to do that. Mm. And we're recording this uh, episode in early in the summer of 2020, and if there was any any thought that anybody had that the by what standard uh, synodoc and the principles that were expressed there were fading away in their relevance. Well, that's been corrected here recently. Uh, and I, I noticed this morning it was uploaded to YouTube, maybe for the first time. That's correct. You know, we have uh, avoided putting it on YouTube because of the concerns we had about being shadow banned and deplatformed. And that may yet happen. But before that happened, we wanted to make sure that it was widely available without interruption for a, a good season. So we did that on our own website. You know, it, that took a lot of effort and we had to expand things and capacities, but uh, we received over 60,000 views on our own website, plus mm. I don't know, thousands of DVDs and Blu-rays that we produced as well. But yeah, now it's available on YouTube, so it's easily shareable. We encourage people to do that. And man, if you go to the Founders Ministries YouTube channel, let me encourage you to, to uh, subscribe to that channel. There's a ton of good content on there and share the By What Standard video. I, we have been overwhelmed in the last 10 days or so with people saying, thank you for this. We hadn't heard of this. 
this explains a lot of what we're seeing on the evening news. Um, and I'm saddened that to this point, I'm not surprised. Well, uh, praise the Lord that you've been able to fill the gap where you know, some people have had a disconnect in their churches with understanding the world around them. Um, and speaking of the local church, you've been the pastor there at Grace Baptist in Cape Coral for over 30 years now, which is longer than Ken and I have been alive. <laughs> Not combined, though. So, <laughs> 34 years last Sunday, actually. So, yeah. Oh, praise the Lord. Wow. Um, now, we're always interested in how churches evolve over time when there's been one main guy on staff. How have you seen that local ministry change in your three plus decades there? Yeah, well, it's changed a lot. I, I wrote a chapter for a book. I'm sorry, I can't remember the exact name of it now, but Jeff Robinson edited it for Crossway. Um, and my assignment, my chapter title, I think is something like, I now pastor a church I would never have joined. Hmm. And, and that's the truth. The church was in kind of a bad way. Uh, no, it was in a really bad way. Uh, I was uh, had finished up a ministry in Dallas at a large church and because of some ethical concerns resigned. Um, <clears throat> didn't have anywhere to go. I'm finishing up the seminar work on PhD studies at Southwestern Seminary and really struggling, wondering, you know, man, you know, is God finished with me in the ministry? I don't, I don't know what uh, the future holds here. And uh, through some incredible providences of God, I won't give the details. I wound up uh, coming to this church and preaching just to fill in one Sunday while I was visiting a friend here. And uh, the, the deacons met and they say, hey, we want you to be our pastor. I don't even know if I can be your you're a member of this church, much less pastor. So they gave me the constitution bylaws, read it on the plane on the way home to Dallas and wrote them a letter thanking them. I said, I couldn't, ever, I couldn't even be a member here. I said, I would never submit myself to uh, your theology. They built in dispensationalism. Everybody had to be a dispensationalist to be a member. I got dispensationalist friends, but I'm not one. So I couldn't do that. And then because of the problem they'd had with the founding pastor, which had founded the church just like two and a half, three years prior, uh, they had this long drawn out ordeal of how you get rid of a pastor, how to fire a pastor. And I said, well, I'd never submit to that as uh, somebody who's a pastor. So they voted, they, they had a business meeting, they voted those two things out. They voted their dispensationalism out. They voted <laughs> the uh, how to fire a pastor out. And they said, okay, now will you come? Well, I anyway, long story wow. short. You were just the bell of the ball, huh? I, yeah, you know, well, no, <laughs> I mean, here's what happened. They, I, I had since seen letters from men that they issued calls to that said, we won't touch this church with a 10-foot pole. You'll never get a good man to be your pastor. It's such a bad, you know, all these things that were being said about it. So what I tell people now is that uh, they were a church nobody wanted. I was a pastor nobody wanted, and it was like a marriage made in heaven. So <laughs> I've been here uh, 34 years since, and, and it's changed a lot. I often tell people that I've pastored about three or four different churches in that time, and they've had at least three or four different pastors in that uh. time. Uh, <laughs> I've grown, I've changed, and so has the church. But overwhelmingly, God's been so kind. Uh, they, they have been faithful. We only have one charter member left. She just celebrated her 100th birthday, and uh, her husband was a deacon, good man, faithful man wow. who got in way, wonderful ways. But the church was untaught. Um, it, again, it was about three years old. It formed out of a split, kind of a country club mentality. You know, the older adults that just really wanted to do things their way. And, um, had been abused with bad leadership. And, and anyway, I, God just sustained me through those early five, six, seven years. 
And uh, I came in with an attitude of, I think I can outlive most of these people, if nothing else. And God's <laughs> kindness uh, has preserved me and blessed in ways that I certainly don't deserve and can't even fully understand. But it's a wonderful church today. I, I just, I love it. I miss it when I'm not able to be with the people here. They've been so patient, loving, understanding, and forgiving of me. So um, we've just grown in grace together over those years. Praise the Lord. That's a that's an incredible testimony. We praise the Lord for that. Now you are a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, your brother Bill is also a Southern Baptist pastor. Growing up, yeah. did you both know that you would both be headed to full time ministry, or is that something that just kind of you just woke up one day and realized, whoa, hey, we're both pastors here? <laughs> well, yeah, neither quite exactly on those options, but uh, no, most days I woke up wondering if he was going to kill me or not, yeah. <laughs> brother. So I was trying to stay alive. Uh, but no, it, it happened within a week of each other, maybe within two or three days of each other during a special uh, youth emphasis revival, we called it back in those days, a youth revival. And a guy came in and preached, and man, Bill was convicted, and, and God dealt with him deeply. The result of that was he since being called to pastoral ministry. Same thing happened with me a day or two after, and I was, I was, uh, I was in a bad way because I now looking back, I realize it was just my own jadedness and uh, hypocrisy and, and pride, self-righteousness, but I just didn't like pastors. I had bad experiences. Our family had bad experiences with pastors. And so, you know, I, I used to say, I don't, I don't know a pastor I trust. And I, I carried that attitude with me uh, even into seminary. But um, here God was calling me to be a pastor. And I thought, this is a cosmic joke. You know, this, this is a cruel joke. God's playing on me. But over that time, Bill preached um, for the church and they licensed him. And shortly after that, I preached. They licensed me. And, uh, you know, I was 16 years old, which is kind of crazy. But uh, different churches would ask us to preach at times. And so I, I began doing that, not every week, but with some regularity, I would preach in local churches and went off to Texas A&M. And uh, my senior year there, a church out of the blue asked me to be their pastor. I didn't have anything else to do. So I did that and graduated from seminary or from uh, A&M. I didn't want to go to seminary because the one pastor that I knew that I did trust told me seminary ruins preachers and I shouldn't go, but I uh, didn't have anything else to do. So I went to Southwestern and I followed Bill there. He'd been there for uh, like three or four years ahead of me. So anyway, no, we didn't have any idea about that, but we've had wonderful fellowship since. He's been a great friend to me, a mentor and encourager along the way. Uh, he's had a faithful ministry. God's used him in some hard situations in pastoral ministry, and he's remained true over a long time. So uh, he's been a great encouragement and model for me. That's great. Praise the Lord for that, that you can have that unique relationship with uh, with your brother in that way. So. Yeah. Now, Founders began, uh, Founders Ministries began in the 1980s, early 1980s, is that right? Yeah, 82 was a prayer meeting that we all met together in November that year. And then the next year, 83, we had the first conference. Okay. And and it's, of course, within the Baptist tradition, and the goal is to train men and women in local churches to rely on God's Word as sufficient. What role did you play early on in that ministry, and what issues have you seen in the church since Founders' inception that have only deepened your conviction about the need for this ministry? Yeah, well, I didn't play much of a role early. I, I was the um, youngest guy there seminary student and Ernie Reisinger was really the driving force behind it. Ernie had been deeply involved in uh, bringing 
uh, Reformation theology to the United States, largely through the Banner of Truth. He was a trustee there. Um, unusual fellow, wonderful, wonderful man, great friend to me, great encouragement to me uh, up until his death. And Ernie gathered some men together. So, hey, let's meet together outside of Dallas. We met in a hotel in Euless, Texas. Tom Nettles had just gone to be professor at um, Mid-America Seminary in uh, Memphis. He had been at Southwestern prior to that time. So he flew back in. My brother came along with a staff evangelist from Broadmoor Baptist Church, where my brother was an assistant pastor at the time. R.F. Gates was uh, his name. So he came. Um, I was there. Fred Malone, who was hoping to do PhD studies at Southwestern and moved to Fort Worth, he was there. And uh, Ben Mitchell was there. Ben has, is now a bioethicist, but he was at that first meeting as well. So we, we were we spent the morning in prayer and we met Saturday morning early and uh, prayed together, read scripture, sang hymns together, and then broke for lunch and came back and tried to plan what, what should we do? Because all of us were there. We were in Aaron's. This is 1982 three years into the inerrancy controversy in the SBC. So all of us were convinced inerrantists, but we all knew that inerrancy wasn't enough, that at some point you're gonna to have to say, what does this inerrant book actually say and require of us? And God had led all of us to come to embrace the doctrines of grace through different paths, but we all had that in common. And so we thought, well, let's see if we had a conference for pastors, would anybody come if we did this in a Southern Baptist context? And we had about a hundred people the next year gathered in Memphis, and we were amazed that there were that many people interested in a conference built upon the doctrine's grace. So that was the first effort. We had another conference the next year, and from that has grown into what is now Founders Ministries, which is just a multifaceted ministry that has a variety of ways that we're trying to see the gospel of the Lord Jesus recovered and local churches biblically renewed and reformed according to the Word. Hmm. Are there any particular issues? I mean, obviously, social justice is a big thing right now. Um, but w what else falls within that category of things that you see that are being popularized in the church, being taught from pulpits that that really just further confirm your conviction that Founders is a needed ministry, particularly within the Baptist uh, tradition? Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of things. I've had people say to me, some denominational leaders have said to me over the last couple of years, Tom, why are you doing this? Why are you engaging the social justice issue? I mean, Founders is all about Calvinism. And look, Calvinism is everywhere. It's cool. Everybody loves it. So you never won. Um, it, one guy actually did say that to me on the phone. He, he said, I just got to have a question. I don't understand you. He said, man, you've been arguing for Calvinism for your whole ministry, and you've won. Look at this convention. He was talking about the uh, Dallas Convention when J.D. Greer was elected president. He said, if somebody had told you 20 years ago what was going to happen in Dallas this year, uh, you would have just been ecstatic, wouldn't you? And I said, no, I wouldn't have been if I'd known then what I know now. And I said, mm -hmm. and you're right, you don't understand me, because if you think I'm all about Calvinism, that's only what I'm concerned about, you, you misunderstand. I mean, I'm about Calvinism because I'm about the Bible, and I believe that Calvinism is a good explanation, the best explanation of how the gospel works. And I'm concerned that the gospel is being forsaken by being assumed. And so th th those convictions are absolutely the same. And the things that we've tried to emphasize still need to be emphasized. So it is the centrality of Jesus Christ, the, centra the lordship of Christ. It is the, the inerrancy, authority, and sufficiency of God's word. So let me just give you one example of an issue that we have been addressing since day one, 
And there's been some traction, but not significantly in the SBC, maybe a little bit in some other areas, and that is regenerate church membership. I mean, it is in the SBC Baptist Faith and Message. It is in basically every Baptist confession of faith that you can find, because that's one of the core distinctives of Baptists, is we believe that our membership should be comprised of people who give evidence of being born again. And yet in the SBC, it remains true now after, what, 35 years after the conservative resurgence and however many, nearly 40 years after founders uh, came into existence, it remains true that over half of the members in Southern Baptist churches cannot be found, even if the FBI went looking for them. They just, <laughs> we don't know where they are. And we continue them on in these categories of non-resident or inactive members as if that's something that will be passable with God on Judgment Day. And so just that, I mean, what is a church? How's a church to function? And what does it mean to be a member of a Baptist church? So, I mean, that's one. I could talk about others, but that's a, that's a, a key issue. And it comes right back to, does the Bible speak to this? And what does it say? And what does it mean to be in covenant with other believers under the Lordship of Christ in a local assembly? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, that uh, um, resolution that uh, was presented in, in 2008, you know, that's, yeah. you know, that's what you referred to on regenerate church membership and church member restoration, where you, you know, reading through that resolution, it outlines that exact problem. And at the time of that resolution, there was some 16 million reported members, and I don't know what the number is now. Um, and then, but there were only around 6 million people that actually had participated in a weekly gathering. And so, right. yeah, where are these 10 million people? Right, and and so when when pr- confronted with that kind of of issue, is it just a, ma- a matter of churches um, keeping better membership roles and just scratching off people when they're no longer participating, or is there a deeper issue there? Yeah, it's a much deeper issue, and again, I think it goes to the heart of what we're concerned about here. It's the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, and and so today, Southern Baptists, by uh, overwhelmingly, you'll you'd be hard pressed to find a Southern Baptist that doesn't affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. Praise God for that. But I, I just, you know, I'm a pastor, and, and I, Hebrews thirteen seventeen uh, drives me to my knees, and I'm going to have to give an account one day for the people that I shepherd, and. It, it just seems like some pastors don't take that seriously enough. And so rather than thinking in terms of regenerate church membership, what does a healthy church look like where we're practicing regenerate church membership? We use different metrics. And so we say, oh, well, look at this, man, this guy is pastor of a church that baptized 500 people last year. Well, in, in one sense, okay, uh, <laughs> praise God. Are those 500 people continuing a year later? Our statistics, our, our analyses that are done pretty regularly tell us, no, one study indicated less than 10% can be found a year later. Well, I, I don't want to throw stones at anybody, but but I just want to say, brothers, brothers, we're going to get an account. And didn't Jesus say in warning against the Pharisees and rebuking them that they travel over land and sea to make a convert? And when they're finished with their converts, those folks are twice the children of hell they were before. And do, if we're sending people to hell with decision cards in their pockets, I, I shudder at that. And so there's not a trembling at the word of God. Uh, there's, there's not, doesn't seem to be um, an adequate fear of God within our churches that are unashamedly 
saying we affirm the inerrancy of scripture and it's a disconnect. I, I don't, I don't think these are bad people. I just think they're people that have been discipled more by pragmatism in our world than they have by the actual word, which they're standing on and saying, this is inerrant. Hmm. You're obviously not shy about confronting your own denomination. <laughs> uh, if if no one knew any of your history, they know now. Uh, so, I mean, in addition to these resolutions you've been a part of and, um, you know, the things that you've done at Founders through the years, thinking specifically about the Synodoc that came out, by what standard, that that made a few waves, uh, to say the least. Uh, I think it made maybe more waves before it was actually premiered. Um, <laughs> just the trailer got a lot of attention. <laughs> yeah, it sure did. Uh, um, and, and in that film, several members of the SBC laid out a case against social justice and pled for a change of direction within the SBC. Now, knowing going into it, there was no way that you were ignorant of the risks involved. You knew that this was going to make waves. Uh, how did you come to the decision that the film was worth that risk to your relationships and connections within your own denomination? And what kind of feedback have you received since that came out? Yeah, well, I didn't sit down and do any calculations. Um, so, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be popular, but that's not really a problem. That shouldn't be a major concern for uh, Christians, much less for pastors. Uh, the question that really drove me is, is this right? Is this needed? And this needs to be said. Nobody's saying this. Or, uh, I mean, I, I, when I, I just, I was slow coming to see the things underlying the social justice movement mm. that are there. And I just didn't want to see it. I didn't want to believe it. And what helped me is I finally had to just put a bag over all these guys' faces that I know and love and have respected and just look at what they said and did and forget who it was coming from. Mm. When I did that, my eyes were open. I said, this is bad. This has got to be addressed. And, Tried to do a lot of that privately and got nowhere, uh, quite honestly. I mean, I got a little bit of sympathetic hearing here and there, but nothing pra practically. And so uh, I realized, okay, we've got some leaders. They're going to tell you what's wrong theoretically. They're going to be just right in theory. But when it comes to the ground and what this means and how we ought to live, what we ought to do, they're not going to take the hard stands that need to be taken. They're not going to do the hard work. And, you know, I, I'm just, it was a matter of stewardship. I mean, God opened my eyes and, Founders, uh, we, we were building some friendships with folks in different sectors of the evangelical world. The whole statement on social justice and the gospel, uh, you know, that was very helpful in realizing, okay, there are other people in the room. We've never been in the room together when we met in Dallas two years ago this June. But we were all there and we were all saying, yeah, we see the same things. And there was like this big sigh of relief because we were coming from different sectors of the evangelical world but we are all agreeing on what we were seeing behind this social justice movement. So um, it just seemed like this was right for founders. This was right for us. We've always been about the gospel, protecting the gospel. I was convinced that this was the biggest threat to the gospel that I had seen in my lifetime. And when I talk like that, I'm not suggesting that the gospel is going to go away or be defeated. I'm talking about the gospel being covered up and clouded over and, um, and marginalized in our generation, which has happened time and again throughout history. And so because of Founders' commitment to the gospel and talking through with our board members at that time, um, you know, I, I probably was reading more about this and thinking more about it than, quite honestly, the other guys were, not, not because of anything other than God had just positioned me to think and be in places where I was confronted with it. 
And uh, as our board began to see it and say, yeah, okay, well, let's deal with this. I mean, it was hard moving through that argument. But I remember saying at one point, look, if we don't get ahead of this thing, we'll be longing for the days when we used to debate about Calvinism and Arminianism. You know, those, those will be the good old days mm -hmm. because I'm right in what I see coming. It's going to be miserable. And um, anyway, so that's, that's what got us going. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's been a hard road. I, my wife and I actually were talking about this last night and uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a high price uh, involved. Have you been in, blackballed? Oh, oh yeah. But I mean, it's, I'm a pastor of a local church. So in terms of uh, denominational things or Big Eva or anything, I, I, I say this all the time. I've been saying this for 30-something years, is they don't have anything I want, and I don't have anything they can take. And so that's the foundation of a great relationship. <laughs> I don't have to fear them. They don't have to worry about me. I mean, I, you know, I, there's just no, no reason for me to play footsies with anybody uh, about things that uh, they might have that I, I could aspire to, to uh, participate in or to, or to receive. But it, it, the thing I think that's grieved me the most been hardest is to see the toll that this has taken on people that I love. Uh, there have been a lot of folks that have been hurt deeply. And uh, I'm saddened by that. You know, I don't know what to do with all that sometimes, mm -hmm. but just trust the Lord is good and wise and, and almighty, and he's going to work that out. Um, but I'm grateful. I, I wouldn't change it. I praise God that he led us and enabled us to persevere to see this thing to completion because from day one, we have received deep expressions of appreciation from people, not just in the SBC world, not just in evangelicalism here, but around the world. Hmm. We've had people contact us and say, thank you. This helps. This puts into words what I've been trying to say, or this helps me to see what I, I suspected was there, but didn't quite know how to put my finger on it. And I can tell you, especially in the social upheaval that we're experiencing now in June of 2020, uh, it, we, we receive multiple uh, messages, emails, phone calls a day from people saying, thank you. you know, thank you for your willingness to speak out. Thank you for helping us to see this. Pastors, which is you know, my heart's real concern and burden, is to try to help pastors and um, I, the pastor was here this morning as we were taping the sword and trial and, and he was expressing his appreciation and how much he's been helped over the last couple of years to think rightly about these things and begin to understand what's going on. And that is happening multiple times a day now and praise God for it. And I, I it's not because founders, there's anything special. It's just because God has, has placed this in our orbit and has burdened us with a sense of stewardship with what he's entrusted to us. And, and we want to be faithful. You know, we, we want to discharge that stewardship to the best of our ability and make it as, as useful and helpful to as many people as possible. In this conversation, we've mentioned Calvinism and Arminianism. We've mentioned uh, dispensationalism. But now that as we're talking about social justice and critical theory, it, it seems like there's like a heightened concern with that area. And, and really the heart of this podcast is to discern primary from secondary, from tertiary in doctrine, and making sure that we apply the right weights and measures to different areas of doctrine. Do you believe that when we're talking about critical theory and social justice, that we are in that primary area as opposed to maybe the Calvinism-Arminianism discussion? 
Yeah, absolutely. I do. I, I think it's far more important than Calvinism or Arminianism. And uh, one of the gratifying things that has happened is uh, there are people that I've crossed swords with over the years over Calvinism or Arminianism that uh, are now, you know, we're side by side standing against this thing and trying to contend mm-hmm. for the gospel against this onslaught. That doesn't mean, you know, that uh, we're going to just forget about it and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter what you believe about you know, the way the gospel works. No, it's important. And I'm happy to have those debates, but those are fraternal debates. Uh, these are debates against the ideologies that are birthed from godless ways of thinking. And I believe that are a part of the, the strategies of principalities and powers that are marshaled against Jesus Christ and his church. So, yeah, this is, uh, this is far more important than Calvinism, Arminianism. This has to do with the foundations. You know, the, the, we, we need to debate the aspects of the house. That's important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important. You need to get the walls in the right place, doors, windows, all that needs to be in the right place. But it doesn't matter if your foundation is being eroded. I mean, you can have all that stuff just right and wake up one day and find yourself in the middle of the ocean because you have been swept away. And these issues are worldview issues. These are substrata issues. These go to the very nature of reality, the world that God has created and his place in that world. And it goes to, again, the very fundamental um, concern about the nature and authority of his word. So I've said more times than I can count over the last two or three years that the most important verse in all the Bible is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is his world. And I I think we assume that. I think a lot of Christians are assuming that. And so whenever folks that are, whether wittingly or unwittingly, God knows, I'm willing to leave that as an open question. Whenever they come, having been discipled in critical theory, and say, well, this is what justice looks like. You ought to be about justice. This is what love looks like. This is what compassion looks like. That because there there has not been a, a uh, rigorous thinking about those fundamental issues, that some of our folks are very easily manipulated and being led astray, thinking that they're doing good. When in reality, what they're doing is, is providing access to a world of evil that will absolutely destroy the foundations that the scripture gives to us and knowing God, knowing ourselves in God's world and knowing how to be related to God savingly through his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, right now we have, you know, such significant tensions in this country and really around the world. It's not just in America, but it is really around the world. And we're finding more and more uh, Christians or people who claim to be Christians embracing social justice ideology and principles and uh, using those as a means to discussing issues within the church and the social justice ideology to an extent there's a there's a bit of a, a spectrum of their on there uh, so to speak where um, you know people might endorse different aspects of it or will have different approaches to that I just wonder how far would you say a Christian, could go in sympathizing with some of the things that uh, the social justice movement is advocating for or proclaiming before they get to the point where they are outright embracing heresy and promoting heresy. Yeah, well, let's go as far as the scripture goes. I mean, let's, as long as we're talking about what the Bible talks about, that's, that's part of the concern is many in the social justice movement are using our vocabulary, but not our dictionary. Mm-hmm. And so they, they take these words that are good Bible words 
And then they say, well, if you're going to believe in justice, this is what you must do. And if you're going to believe in love, if you're going to love your neighbor, this is what you must do. And that's where the, the question needs to be asked. And I'm not trying to be cute here, but by what standard? You know, love according to whose definition? Justice according to whose definition? So the, the best I can say is that in this social justice movement, I think that, that perhaps the light has been shined on some issues that need attention. So, okay, have women been mistreated? No doubt. You know, sex abuse a problem? Absolutely, it's a problem. Um, is racism a problem? Of course, it's a problem. And so let's look at that. Let's sympathize with that. But let's not think that we're wiser than God and that we can say, okay, because we've identified this problem, here's the way you've got to frame it. And here's the way you've got to address it. Uh, this, gosh, the, the women's issue is huge. Uh, some of the people that are advocating for um, the proper treatment of women, they are coming from a feminist egalitarian worldview that I, I'm concerned that they're just not conscious of. They're not thinking uh, rightly about the way that they have been discipled to think about women. So do women need to be protected? Do women need to be honored? Absolutely. Okay, well, here's the feminist agenda for that. And so you got to do it. No, I'm not going to do that. Well, then you don't honor women. You don't care about women. Well, that's not true. It's not true. And same thing with race. Uh, you know, is, is racism a problem? Absolutely, it's a problem. Well, okay, you've agreed that racism is a problem. Let me tell you what racism is. Racism is not sinful partiality based upon ethnicity or skin color. That's what the Bible would define it if, we, if the Bible used the word racism. It just says, talks about sinful partiality. But here's what racism is. It's prejudice plus, plus power. And so you who are in the majority culture and you who are in the places of power, according to our critical theory ideology, we get to decide who that is, and you have prejudice in any way, well, then that's guilty. You're guilty of racism, and you can be guilty of racism, as Robin D'Angelo is very famous for saying, without a racist being in the room. Racism can exist without any racists being present, and we won't say that about any other sin, and so that this this way of thinking is wrong, and that's why it's a hard conversation to have, because you can say, yeah, racism is bad. We need to address it. Yeah, mistreatment of women is bad. Yeah, sex abuse is bad. And molesting children, abusing children is bad. We need to address that. And then they begin to think, okay, but here's how you got to do it. If you don't do it that way, you're not an ally. And so even on the racial issue, if you've noticed, the language has shifted um, as the advocates of critical theory have argued for many more years before it happened from racial reconciliation to anti-racism. Well, anti-racism is a well-thought-out ideology. You need to go look it up and read it before you, you identify yourself as an anti-racist. And I'm not going to participate in that godless ideology. So, you know, yes, praise God for anybody that can help us to see things that are not the way they should be. And uh, we can think together about them. We all have blind spots. I got them. Everybody's got them. And it's good to listen to people who aren't like yourself. We all can be tempted to live in an echo chamber. I mean, I, I try to read widely on this stuff uh, to listen to people. I just, just by God's grace, I'm in Southwest Florida. So, uh, I mean, we, we've got a large Latino population here. We have a small um, black population here. We've got folks from the Caribbean all over. I mean, and our eldership, we got six elders. We have a, a, a black elder. We have a, a, a Latin American elder. Uh, you know, I, I'm kind of a Heinz 57 guy. So uh, but we've got three white guys in addition to that. And I watched a, uh, a, a video responding to the, the protests 
that was put out by the North American Mission Board a few days ago. There's three men, uh, two black men and a white guy. They're all church planners or pastors. And they're trying to reason you know, about what, how do we think about this? How do we, we want to identify? We want to be empathetic. And, and I watched it and my, my heart was grieved. And so I actually contacted Kevin Ezell, the president of the North American Mission Board, said, have you seen this? So I'm concerned about this, deeply concerned about the lack of, of moral reasoning here from scripture. And uh, we went back and forth and, you know, I didn't change his mind. He didn't change mine. But I was able to send it to my fellow elder, who's black. And I say, Dom, would you watch this? Give me your feedback. Well, he watched it. We talked about it. And we, we see it pretty similarly. Not because he's white or he's black, I'm white, and he's been brainwashed or something like that. No, it's because we're reading from the same book. We're trying to think biblically about it. And so, I, man, guys who see these issues well on the women's issue, on uh, the sex abuse issue, on the race issue, so often they're canceled by our contemporary culture, even evangelical culture, because they don't toe the party line according to the dictates of social justice that has been well-schooled in critical theory. Yeah, and it's, it's it's so tough too because right now, you know, with with all the things that are currently going, especially with the the racism issue, there's just an incredible amount of of public pressure placed upon mm-hmm. even just within social circles. There's an incredible amount of pressure, peer pressure, uh, to you know to go one way or another on things, and you know as as you know as leaders within our churches, we're trying to figure out how to you know shepherd a group of people that may have different approaches to what we should do about some of these things and how we should respond. And uh, so do you have anything to say towards um, to what degree uh, an individual Christian's response or involvement with, with some of these issues is, is just purely a conscience issue, that we should have grace towards them in that way, that, okay, they're, they're approaching things from a particular, in terms of what they, uh, what they will do, their response to it, or are things really more much more foundational than that, and, and, and any form of involvement with that is really problematic. Yeah, well, and even even just adding on to that, thinking from a pastor's perspective, if someone uses the hashtag Black Lives Matter, is that grounds for church discipline? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, if someone goes to a rally, is that grounds for church discipline? If someone starts advocating for it in the church, you know, where's the line on that? Yeah, well, I mean, it has to be considered. It is, in my mind, this is a foundational issue, and so... How you think about it is crucial, but you, you got to disciple people to help them think. And so what we've tried to do here um, for you know, decades, but especially in these last several years on this issue, and again, by God's grace, I mean, our, what's happening today in the nation, um, our folks have at least had the opportunity, and, and most of them, I think, have, have been able to think rightly about it because we've been talking about these ideologies for the last few years. And so they're not taken off guard by it, but yeah, you know, if somebody uses a hashtag black lives matter, um, that's, that shows at best, probably a a lack of mature biblical, spiritual, theological thinking, but it doesn't mean that they're evil. Doesn't mean that they're, you know, wicked or sinful probably means I would hope at least it means that they're naive, but if they're doing it consciously and they're saying, no, black lives matter, then, you know, hashtag black lives matter uh, black lives matter.com if they're talking about the organization they need to be educated and i've been able to do that with some say look you know I, of course we're talking about people 
yeah, Black Lives Matter. I mean, duh, who, who disagrees with that? But if you're using that language, you need to know what you're doing. You are speaking the language of an organization that uh, doesn't really care about black lives that much because we murder, what, 400,000 black lives every year uh, mm -hmm. lawfully in this country, and very little is said about that in this movement. But also an organization that advocates for LGBTQ uh, issues, for trans, everything under the sun that is contrary to the word of God. And so is, is, are you telling me you're identifying with that? You're allying with that? Well, if so, well, then that's a serious problem, and that has to be addressed. But I think very often people get caught up in the moment. They want to do something. They, they have an emotional response to what they see or hear. And um, this sounds virtuous. They've been told this is a virtuous response. And what we've got to do as pastors, we got to disciple our people better. We've got to shepherd them to understand what is truly virtuous. You know, I mean, how much does it cost you to put hashtag Black Lives Matter? There's nothing to that. I mean, it didn't cost you a thing. In fact, you'll be applauded in the world today. But to stand up and say, this is what the Word of God says. This is what God actually says. And to make sure that our starting point is the Scripture and that we're committed to the final authority of Scripture and then not use that to beat each other over the head, but to say, okay, come, let's reason. Let's sit down together and see what does the word actually say. And it's a discipleship issue. And I, you know, I've got brothers in the ministry, pastors, friends, and they're behind the they're behind in the game on this because they didn't see it coming. Uh, I've heard from several who up until recent weeks, you know, were thinking, you know, we didn't think it's a big deal. We thought you'd lost your mind. And now we're beginning to realize, whoa. And, you know, some have said, I owe you an apology, and I'm not looking for apologies, but they, they have to kick it into gear and make up for lost ground. And quite honestly, some of them, it's going to be, it's not going to happen without mm. some fractured relationships because people have been allowed to think unbiblically about these issues. And now that they boiled over into the culture to call upon them to think in a way that is different to how they've been thinking, uh, it's it's difficult and um, it's a it's a real challenge. Well, thank you for your willingness to talk on these issues and to talk with us today. We always ask the same final concluding question, uh, so we'd love to hear your thoughts on on this. Just for the typical American layperson, what encouragement do you have? Uh, for them as it pertains to living out their unity in Christ, developing convictions on theological matters, and avoiding foolish controversies all at the same time while trying to live this Christian life? Yeah, well, a couple of things. One, Jesus is Lord. He's king. He rules. So don't don't lose sleep. Uh, be concerned about what's going on. But man, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, just meditate on that. Look at the unseen realities. They never change. We could all say that over the last three months, our world has changed, and we can point to hundreds of things that have changed, most of them for the bad, it seems like. But the most important things have not changed. They're exactly the same. And so we've got to keep remembering that. And then I would say work hard to not, not just affirm the authority of Scripture, but work hard. Pray. Ask God to teach you His ways, to show you the, the truth of his word in such a way that you will not just be a hearer of the word, but you'll put it into practice. You'll be like the man who builds his house on the foundation, not on the sand by hearing the word and not doing it. And I, my goal 
as a Christian, what I want for our church, I want to be as narrow as the Bible is narrow, where the Bible is narrow. And I want to be as broad as the Bible is broad, where the Bible is broad. And let people live uh, in those ways and realize that we're not all going to see things exactly the same way in this life. Try to distinguish between what are the fraternal, intramural debates that we need to have and what are the things that we need to draw the line in the sand and say, no, we're not going to budge an inch from this. And the closer those things get to the gospel, uh, the more quickly we need to be willing to draw the line. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's uh, talked about some hard things today, and but they're very important things. So we are very appreciative of, of your time. And for those listening, we encourage you again to check out founders.org and um, you know track along with the uh, Wield the Sword project. Is, it's, uh, is there a release date set for that? or? Just... Well, we've actually just finished uh, a couple of weeks ago the initial uh, recording for the, the first couple of series. Uh, but, you know, it's financially we're in a tight spot, so we're not able to finish producing everything that we filmed. We put our money into that. Uh, so as we get money, we're going to be releasing these uh, individual uh, documentaries. And we, we've got, I think we've got enough footage for like three or four of them right now, but we don't, we're not in a position to finish producing them. So as God prospers that and blesses that, uh, we'll be releasing them. I'm hoping we can release the first one uh, maybe in the next week or two. Great. Well, again, for, for those listening, you just heard uh, uh, a financial need there. There's uh, information on founders.org on how to contribute to this important project. So I encourage you to check that out. Well, again, thank you very much for having us. And um, until next time, everybody, do theology. <laughs>